Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. Thank you for watching this virtual lecture event hosted by the Institute of World Politics. For those of you who are new, IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs. We have five master's degree programs, 18 certificates of study, and a new doctoral program. We also offer the opportunity to take a single course without having to pay an entire semester's worth of tuition costs. One can also audit such a course at a much less cost. If you're interested in learning more about us, please visit iwp.edu. Today's lecture event is a part of the 13th Annual Kosciuszko Chair Conference. This conference is sponsored by the Kosciuszko Chair of Polish Studies and the Center for Intermarium Studies. This evening, we'll be hearing from Mr. Andrew Kavchik. Mr. Andrew Kavchik was born in Montreal. He studied political science and law. He spent his career in the Canadian Federal Civil Service, mostly working in policy units with the Departments of Revenue, Industry, and International Trade. Since retiring, he has pursued his hobbies of reading and writing about history. He has written and published several books that are available on Amazon, including Remembering Gazanko, The Struggle to Honor a Cold War Hero, and The Katyn Forest Massacre, an annotated bibliography of books in English. He currently lives in Ottawa, Canada. Mr. Kavchuk, welcome, and thank you for joining us this evening. Hello, everyone. Uh, first, I'd like to thank the uh, Institute of World Politics for giving me the honor and privilege of speaking to you today. And I'd like to thank Professor Marek Khodakiewicz for this invitation, as well as Katie Stokely and Anna McGann for helping to make this event possible. My topic for discussion is my grandfather Stanisław Kavchuk's memoirs, Dying Echoes, Memoirs of the War, 1914 to 1920, which are about his experiences as a Polish officer in World War I and during the period following Poland's renewed independence. This presentation will consist of several parts. First, I'll cover briefly my grandfather's biography. Uh, the second will be about the publication of his memoirs called in Polish, Miknonce Eka, Wspomnienia z Wojny, 1914 And then I'll, the bulk of the presentation will be a discussion of the uh, main content uh, of the book in chronological order. Uh, to set a uh, context to the, the event, uh, to, described in the book, uh, it's important to realize that Poland did not exist on the map of Europe between the 1790s and the end of World War I. During that entire period, it was basically occupied and partitioned by the three neighboring countries of Russia, Prussia, Prussia and Austria-Hungary. Uh, Austria My grandfather was born in 1892 in the town of Zwarda, which is in southern Today, southern Poland, very close to the southern border, it's in the area known as Galicia, which at that time was occupied by the Austrians. My great-grandfather was a train engineer, a train conductor or driver. And a few years before World War I, he moved the family from Svardan to Novosanch, which became the family home, hometown in the Galicia region. My grand grandfather completed high school in Nowy Sącz in 1911 and then attended the University, Jagiellonian University in Krakow from 1911 to 1913, where he studied law. He was conscripted into military service by the Austrians in 1913 and assigned to an infantry regiment in the Austrian army. At the start of World War I, he held the rank of corporal and was steadily promoted to the rank of captain by the end of the war. After World War I, he joined the new Polish military. His first task was gaining control of the area of Novosanch and ensuring law and order in the region. Well, November 11, 1918, as noted in most Western countries as marking the end of World War I and the start of a new era of peace, the end of the Great War marked the rebirth of the Polish state 
which immediately found itself in wars with its neighbors. And my grandfather was a participant in the wars with the Czechs, the Ukrainians, and then the Bolsheviks. After World War I, when he was not participating in any military campaigns, he joined the legal branch of the military. After the war with the Bolsheviks, he became a lawyer in private practice in Warsaw from 1923 to 1939. In 1939, my grandfather was in the military reserves and mobilized on the eve of World War II with the rank of captain. World War II started on September 1st with the Nazi invasion of Poland from the West. On September 17th, 1939, the Soviets invaded Poland from the East and captured about 250,000 Polish soldiers, including about 10,000 officers. Stanisław Kawczak, my grandfather, fought in the defense of Zesch on the Bug River and was taken prisoner by the Soviets. He was held at a camp known as Starobielsk. In April of 1940, he was executed by the NKVD along with 21,857 other Polish prisoners in what became known as the Katyn Forest Massacre. And most English and French literature about World War I tends to focus on the Western Front. Rel relatively little is known about the Eastern or Southern Fronts. My grandfather's book provides some insights into the life of a Polish officer on those two other fronts. Miknance Eka was written in the mid-1930s and first published in Poland in 1936. I've got here a, a uh, edition, a 1936 edition. And although the book doesn't contain any, any pictures uh, or, or drawings, there is a cover, cover illustration, which appears to uh, depict a, a, uh, a, uh, a <laughs> killed soldier in a trench with his arm hanging over some barbed wire. My father told me that he remembered my grandfather writing the book and using his diary notes during the 1914-1920 period. When the book uh, came out, it was apparently quite popular. I understand it went through two editions. And after the war, World War II, it was apparently banned by the, the, the Soviet communist, uh, communist government in Poland. However, in 1978, this book by Professor Julian Czerzynowski called The History of Polish Literature, it's quite a massive poem. It actually has one, one paragraph about my grandfather's book in which it simply says that it's the best of the war memoirs from that era. Now, two years after uh, Solidarity won the first free elections in Poland after the war in 1989, uh, two years later in 1991, this new edition uh, came out of my grandfather's book uh, in Poland. And uh, my, my father <laughs> visited Poland that summer and I remember he came back with a a briefcase full of them, and we were absolutely thrilled to, to have it. And in 19 or in 2003, I uh, arranged to have the book translated, and it's now published in English as Dying Echoes Memoirs of the War 1914 to 1920 by Stanisław Kapczak. And even though the uh, the book, uh, the previous editions didn't have any pictures. I've uh, arranged that this one would have this picture of my grandfather's uh, Austrian Army military ID card. And this is a picture of him from, I believe, 1919 um, 19 or so. And the cover has a picture of him, which I've been able to confirm was taken in 1915. Uh, yes, the one of, beside this one 
this one was 1919, I believe, and this one's 1915. So uh, the book is now available as an ebook and a paperback on Amazon. There's a lot of material and history in the book, many references to persons, places, and events. Dying Echoes is composed of 50 chapters. There are several distinct parts of the book which reflect the chronological order of the story. The story addresses many different aspects of the life of a soldier and the variety of circumstances and conditions that my grandfather and his fellow soldiers were exposed to during the six-year period. One of the things he describes, for example, is the frequency of their moving from one location to another, and the primary, of course, primary infantry mode of transportation was marching. However, he also describes other means of transportation besides the horse-drawn carts and sleds. There's also the trains, boats, hydroplanes, and in one instance, he actually describes a, a trip he, he made on a German U-boat in the Adriatic. After all the moving around, the book also describes the variety of places where soldiers were able to sleep, ranging from outdoors and on the ground, in barns with animals, trenches, underground shelters, caves, to relatively comfortable hospitals and hotels. And throughout the book, there are tales of food and drink, including descriptions of great feasts and banquets on special occasions in the officer's mess, as well as the agony of going for days without food or drink on the front lines. The book describes many battles. Some are skirmishes of short duration. Other battles are massive and prolonged with intensive artillery bombardment. With the description of the battles, of course, comes descriptions of wounds and death. My grandfather was wounded twice during the war. The first was a result of Russian machine gun fire wounding him in the leg. And the second time was a result of artillery, Italian artillery bombardment, which resulted in wounds to his head and thigh. On both occasions, he was evacuated to hospitals in the rear to recover. The book also describes the death of his colleagues. Sometimes they had the misfortune of sticking their heads up above the trenches or shelter and receiving an instant bullet to the head. In other circumstances, the devastation of artillery bombardment literally shredded people to pieces. In one episode, he describes the horror of one of his colleagues being decapitated and the severed head rolling his feet. And dispersed throughout the book, the author includes political discussions. A major theme running throughout the book reflects the yearning of the Poles to have their own country free of foreign occupation. There were three great battles fought during the beginning of World War I. The first was the Battle of the Marne near Paris which put an end to the German Schlieffen plan and the hopes for a quick victory over the French. The second was the Battle of Tannenberg, which broke Russia's invasion of East Prussia into pieces. And the third was the Battle of Galicia, which was a major battle between Russia and Austria during the early stages of the war. In the course of the battle, the Austrian armies were severely defeated while well, the Russians captured Lemberg, known as Wolf in Polish, and for approximately nine months ruled Eastern Galicia until their defeat at Gorlice and Tarnu. The first 17 chapters deal with the fighting between the Austrians and the Russians in the Battle of Galicia, which covers the 1914 to 1915 period. This part of the book describes endless marching often without the soldiers knowing where they were going, as well as a number of clashes with the enemy. The fire fights involved, either involved rifles and machine guns, grenades, artillery bombardment, or a combination. In one episode, 
my grandfather describes a cavalry attack. In another, he describes a Russian attack that resulted in fighting with bayonets. I'd like to give you a flavor of some of the writing and the story with a few excerpts. In one situation, my grandfather was ordered with some of his colleagues to patrol the edge of the San River. That episode resulted in his being awarded a promotion. I read, this is from page 53. I located our terrain on the map and was ordered to patrol the widow, willows along the embankment as far as the river, report the situation and await further orders and shoot should the enemy appear. This is what your gun is for, the major sternly concluded. I dispatched two groups totaling 14 men along the path indicated on the map. The willows continued for about half a kilometer. A wailing noise persisted above, but we were safe. We inched forward carefully since a Cossack could be lurking behind any bush and reached the lit river within a quarter of an hour. The watery had a silvery sheen barely flowing, oblivious of the rumbling guns. We scattered along the bank at five meter intervals and started digging in. Then on the opposite shore, there suddenly appeared one and then another team of horses harnessed to huge wagons. All these followed by another team advanced towards the riverbank. I realized these were Russian pontoons, hence, they intended to cross at this point. In all haste, I drew a plan of the situation and sent it together with a report to the rear. The moment when the Russians assembled 12 wet wagon loads on a whistled signal, we opened fire. It is hard to describe what followed. Screams, shouts, brain, utter chaos, the end of the world. Some wagons were sliding into the river Others tried to climb the embankment, yet others were withdrawing. Both men and horses were gripped by panic. In vain did their commander shout something even we could overhear. Meantime, our gang kept shooting. God only knows how many could have been killed or wounded. Under these circumstances, I dispatched two men some hundred paces to the right and two to the left in order to extend our line of fire we, while we kept shooting just in case. The banging went on for about half an hour when some wagons bearing pontoons re-emerged from the opposite embankment. We greeted them with a concentrated fire. Consequently, they withdrew. Meantime, the Austrian artillery spotter aimed the guns at the Russians so that their bank burned into a virtual hell. Now, at one point, my grandfather became seriously ill with a very high fever and was taken to a hospital in Pilsen. In that hospital, he was in a ward full of other Czech officers. And in the book, he describes over a few pages the dialogue that they had in their discussions of political, this political situation. The Czechs were in favor of what they called pan-Slavism and Russian leadership of the uh, Slavic group of, of nations. This, of course, wasn't particularly appealing to the Poles. And I can't read all of this, but there's one paragraph where uh, he tried to explain to the, the Czechs what the per Polish perspective was about this idea of the Russians leading the Pan-Slavist sort of federation. And he says, you have never experienced the magnanimity of Tsarist rule and are identifying the Russian nation with Tsardom. On four occasions, did our nation rise against the Eastern invader, invader. Each time our efforts were stifled by force. 
we are still bearing the unhealed scars. Poland's most valiant sons had ended their lives on scaffolds or in hard labor. Russian Tsardom had never recognized our nation's right to independence. And in trying to submerge us in an all-Russian sea, no Tsar has ever kept any promises given to us. Tsardom recognizes brother Slavs, but not within its borders. At home, it recognizes only Russians. Russian culture and orthodoxy. In the army, in administration, in education, the Russian language and Russian spirit alone. In the Polish kingdom, there is not a single town where a benevolent Tsar would not erect an Orthodox church. A domed oriental structure as alien to us as a Muslim mosque or a Chinese pagoda. Pan-Slavism seems the sole salvation to you. And to us, it means a loss of individuality, a deadly peril. We know Russia and her regime too well. After Italy declared war uh, on Austria-Hungary and joined the uh, side of the French and the English, uh, which was in, on May uh, 23rd, 1915, my grandfather was assigned with his unit to the Italian front. This part of the story from 1915 to 1917 is covered in chapters 18 to 35 of the book. Most of the border between and the front between the Italy and, the, and Austria is in the Alps, which is not particularly conducive to military operations. Both Italy and Austria attempted to open a gate for an offensive in the east through the Isonzo front, which ran along the Isonzo river. The Italians hoped to break onto the Slovenian plateau, taking Ljubljana, and threatening Vienna. The Austrians hoped for a breakthrough in the opposite direction. Instead, there was an almost continual combat in the area punctuated by a series of 12 battles known as the Battles of the Sonzo. My grandfather spent two years on the Italian front. His unit was assigned in rotation to a number of posts along the front as military necessity required. One of the first things he asserts at the beginning of this section is that neither he nor his fellow Polish soldiers had any grudges with the Italians. The life of the soldier was one of either taking over previously existing trenches or, and shelters or building new ones. In some cases, they were below the Italian positions and easily observed and shot at, while in others, it was the reverse. There was a, often a continuous artillery bombardment. The cold, snow, and blizzards created their own challenges. In one interval from the front in 1916, my grandfather attended a machine gun academy for training purposes in Bruck near Vienna. He won a competition at the end of the course and was subsequently assigned to machine gun units. Among the descriptions of events, there are several which I found particularly gripping. Where he, one was the description that he provides of a trench raid, which was ordered to capture Italian prisoners for reconnaissance purposes. He and his small group who conducted the trench raid were successful. However, in the process, a number of the Polish soldiers were killed. Another event that he describes, which is particularly gripping, was the result of a detonation of an enemy shell right in front of uh, his bunker. Although he survived, several of his comrades were instantly killed and others wounded. However, one of the interesting sections that I found was his description of Christmas of 1917 and what happens when one mixes a little bit of too much consumption of alcohol. And I'll read here, an undeclared truce was established between us and the Italians on Christmas Eve noon. By the light of frayers, 
At night, the Italians are singing carols in a melodious hymnal tone. We took it up. Our Maciecs and Wojtecs climbed on the embankment with their instruments, humming lullaby Jesus. The Italians responded with their mandolins and voices. They have superb voices and are singing very nicely. On the bank, battalion's left flank resounds the Marseillaise. It is the French opposite the Yatsa. Blessed peace. We are strolling on top of the embankment, happy and very drunk. We have been drinking a lot. Yet the Italians and the French have indulged as well, as we can hear sounds of a drunken brawl. The Italians jeer at us. Austriaco barbaro, Germano porco bandito. We, i.e. Poles, say nothing. The Germans, on the other hand, call them traitors and cowards. The verbal interchange flares up until a shot was fired by the Italian side. Filthy blackguards roared the deputy officer Urzut and fired his rifle. Machine guns instantly fired from our left flank. The Italians reciprocated tit for tat and since each of them, including officers, carried on him hand, brigade, hand grenades, a hellish cannonade ensued. Italian cannon, cannons boomed. In response, Lieutenant Giza, already highly inebriated, ordered his gunmen to shoot all their ammunition. The uproar and commotion was not unlike a country fair. And since the men on both sides were possessed by an alcoholic courage, the noise grew so violent that the regimental headquarters, alarmed, desperately inquired, what is going on? The, the telephone rang ad nauseum. And when I reached it, I told the adjutant tersely, the Italians are attacking. Now, regarding Polish politics, there's one, one episode where my grandfather, Stanisław, had an opportunity to meet near at the front with his brother Rudolf, who was in a neighboring uh, regiment. And there's a couple of pages of them talking about the political situation, but I'd just like to read one paragraph here to you. And this is my grandfather's brother, Rudolf, speaking. This is why we ourselves should seek the proper means to serve Poland. I gathered from the conversations I had with my Polish colleagues that the Polish attitude is undergoing a change, that there is a growing conviction that Poland can rise only out of the ruins of the three occupying powers, that their destruction regardless of whether it is Germany, Austria, or Russia, is the basic requirement of Polish national aspirations, that any futile shedding of Polish blood in defense of alien powers is a crime against Poland and her future. This reasoning stems from a survey of our situation and arises instinctively without any political directives to that effect. Believe me, Staszek, this change is taking place in Poles enlisted in, into all the occupiers' armies. I can confirm it by a recent conversation I have had with a Polish prisoner from the Russian army. They are thinking alike. A raison d'etat slowly emerges in the soul of a nation torn apart. Our spirit is slowly emerging from the swaddling cloths of passivity and triple loyalty. It becomes revolutionary. It seeks its own path. Um, now, the Central Powers issued a proclamation on November 5th, 1916, regarding Pol Poland. The Imperial Majesties Wilhelm II and Franz Joseph I resolved to, quote, create an independent Polish state with a hereditary monarchy and constitutional system. The Polish troops 
heard this and recognized that it is the first time in a hundred years that one of the occupiers was, or the two, two, those two central occupiers were spoke of an independent Poland. However, there was much suspicion among the Poles and a suspicion that the Germans in fact were getting bled on the Somme and in Verdun on the Western Front and were increasingly looking towards Poland as a reservoir of recruits. So there was, there's an incident uh, after a, uh, a sort of banquet where this proclamation was discussed by the Austrian leadership. And then afterwards, the, the uh, Polish soldiers uh, got together to, to uh, discuss uh, what, what it meant. And I'll just read to you this one section where a political discussion ensued when the five of us Poles remained alone in my shelter. Lieutenant Bergman, the commander of the technical company spoke. It is high time to launch an organized action. We cannot remain Austria's passive tool forever. The 12th division is mostly composed of Poles and should act. I fully agree that each life is precious. I am informed that Polish troops are being organized in France, and this is where we should be. Yes, yes, we nod. Next to speak was Legionnaire Wojakowski. We should thus contact all Poles in the regiment and eliminate any pro-Germanic feelings among the men. We must subscribe to publications of strong anti-Austrian views, destroy ammunition and equipment, shoot at Austrian and Russian airplanes, inform the Italians about imminent attacks and depots, and facilitate desertions to Italy. It isn't easy, Lieutenant Riga interrupted. Two Russian prisoners digging in my sector yesterday attempted to cross to the Italians by swimming, swimming the Piave River. Our men did not shoot, and they were killed by Italian bullets. So my grandfather then, then confirms that from that day on, a positive irredentist activity was launched. My machine guns set on improper scale were shooting into God's window. And that is the first time in the book where uh, I believe he's uh, describing effectively sabotage of a conspiratorial nature of the Polish officers in the Austrian uh, forces. The reference to shooting into God's windows effectively means that the machine guns were calibrated in such a way as to miss their Italian targets and do the Italians a favor. This wasn't the only ex example of, uh, of sabotage. Uh, another one is that Occasionally, the, um, both sides tried to deliver propaganda leaflets to the other side. And the Austrians had some shells that were empty, which were supposed to contain uh, the standard propaganda uh, messages. But these, on at least one occasion here, were, were changed. And I quote, Consistent with this irredentist action, yesterday, Lieutenant Uzbetsky fired an empty shell from a grenade thrower, and in it, instead of the official appeal to the Italians, he inserted a message of greetings to the Italian troops, asking them not to shoot at individual soldiers swimming across the Piave, as these are deserting to the Allies. It also included a plan of the 12th Division's positions, outlining higher command posts and munition depots. The shell was attached to a few meters long strip of linen so that it would mark the spot on the shell of if the shell dropped and sunk in a boggy soil. I watched for a long time for the Italian's reaction, but nobody stirred behind the Italian embankment for hours. The linen strip vanished the following day, however. The operation was repeated several times over the next few days. 
And then there's another interesting episode where <laughs> self-explanatory, I'll read the quote here, or the paragraph. We were handed a secret order. At 9 p.m., a Prussian squadron will fly in the direction of Gemona, where they are to bomb a rail railway junction. We should point their way with green, green flares. Just you wait. Before they were due, we already raised such a firing racket that the Italians, unaware of the raid, activated their spotlights, which was exactly what we wanted. A few minutes past nine, we heard the noise of the engines. A beam of the Italian spotlight caught the tiny objects in the sky. Whether they managed to make it through, we don't know. With all the racket going on, Corporal Popiolek fired at them a whole ammunition belt. Um, now, connecting with the Italians for purposes of crossing over to the um, Allies proved to be, of course, a major difficulty. One of the, the challenges that the Poles had was that the Germans were um, you know, spread all over uh, wherever two poles were, my grandfather Mens says that wherever two poles were, were met, they were being observed. And so they were being spied upon all the time as the Austrian leadership obviously had some distrust. Eventually what happened in, is um, the, uh, a few of the Polish officers had developed a conspiracy and a plan to defect. And in this situation here, he, he, I quote, following the speech, we debated the major issue. All faces frown with anxiety. Will it succeed? Succeed? For tomorrow, we are to cross to the Italians. Dobrovitsky established contact with the neighboring 56th and 57th Infantry Regiment. Bergman settled the issue with the artillery. Petrovitz prepared the supplies and staffs. The Dreyers, our Czech neighbors, have been contacted. The only trouble is we still do not know about the Italians. We have sent them many reports, but how would they react? Amidst all the confusion, they might greet us with fire. We shall then reciprocate. And then... Damn it all, Dobrojitsky ponders, the Italians might hang us on the chestnut trees along the highway to Tsegia. So even though they had this plan to defect the following day, they weren't able to carry it out because almost immediately um, the unit was relieved and uh, taken away from the front. The regiment, regiment was scattered all over the place. And my grandfather was profoundly surprised with an offer for leave to go study. So he uh, returned to Krakow to study the law at Jagiellonian University. He eventually afterwards completed a, a doctorate in law at the Jagiellonian University. And the final section of the memoirs starts at chapter 36 with his return to Galicia in the last year of the war. In it, my grandfather describes how, upon his return to Novisanch, secret meetings were held there and attended by Colonel Ritz Schmigwe, and they adopted the name Wolnach, which means freedom in Polish. The leader of the organization was Captain Jerzy Dobrojitski, who plays a major prominent role in my grandfather's book. My grandfather, Stanisław Kapczak, was among the leading conspirators. And one of the other conspirators was Józef Giza. Now, a book about the freedom organization was written by Jerzy Giza, whom I believe is related to Józef Giza. And this book was published in Poland about the Wolność organization in uh, 2011. And it contains a, a lot of information and pictures, including a picture, uh, uh, several pages uh, about my grandfather. 
Now, the uh, von Nuscher Freedom Organization uh, were pre preoccupied at first with recruiting members and training. And uh, had a, here's a discussion about the training that they did. And now I issue the order, disperse one by one at 9.15 p.m. rally under the railway bridge on the Dunayev. The guards have been warned. Punctually at 9.10 p.m. we start training. The objective, capture the town, kill the military guards, occupy the arsenal, the town mayor's office, shut the power station, for the night is our ally. We talk in whispers. We can almost hear our hearts and beat. And now carry it out. The crunch of gra gravel mingles with the squeaking of shoes, and they all disperse into the dense reeds. These attacks are fake, of course. We shall get a precise order for a real action from the Krakow Freedom Command. In this manner, we train three times a week, rain or shine, except in a full moon. Among the achievements of the freedom organization were the successful coups in Tarnov and Novesanch on October 30th and 31st, 1918, at the end of the war. The, the coup, my grandfather was the leader in the coup that took place in Novesanch, and he describes briefly how they surrounded the, uh, the armory, which fortunately was. Uh, not very well protected. And then they approached the garrison where there were hundreds of Austrian soldiers and confronted the uh, officer in charge and basically told him it's all over. And following a, a few moments of, of uh, tremendous suspense, the uh, Austrian officer in charge took off his saber, his uh, sword, laid it on the table and apparently shed a few tears and it was over. Uh, the Russians left, or the, the Austrians left, and the Poles immediately started playing the uh, national anthem with a band that was nearby. And there was hugging and kissing all around. However, that immediate period was followed by a severe um, fear of looting and uh, threats to the town security and the depots of supplies that were meant ultimately now to be used by the Polish, the new military. So my grandfather was organizing a militia and effectively was in charge of the region of Novesanch. And in order to maintain order, he issued a, a number of regulations. I quote here, he says, I issued a number of regulations pertaining to public order, among other things, in view of the rapidly diminishing value of the crown and consequent rise in prices, all merchants, merchants, merchants should post in their shop windows prices containing their fair profit corresponding to their invoices and books. These prices had to remain unchanged the prices therefore remain fixed for a few weeks all over the Sunch district. At one point, speculators from the surrounding area were coming to Sunch for purchases. Obviously, this state of affairs could not be tolerated. Yet, the object had been achieved. In view of the prevalent poverty, a rise in prices could have provoked riots. Most uh, Western books about World War, World War I typically end um, with November 30, uh, 11th, 1918, and perhaps with a discussion of the subsequent Treaty of Versailles negotiations. However, November 11th, 1918 marked the rebirth of Poland, and with it, a number of disputes with its neighbors. These included the war with the Czechs, the war with the Ukrainians, and then the Polish-Bolshevik War. 
The Poland-Czechoslovakia War, also known in Czech sources as the Seven Day War, was a military confrontation between Czechoslovakia and Poland in early 1919. My grandfather was assigned to a military expedition which was involved in a number of skirmishes with the Czechs. However, the highlight of that section was when he was blindfolded and taken to Czech headquarters to engage in some negotiations regarding the frontier. Another conflict with a neighboring country was the Polish-Ukrainian War of November uh, of 1918-1919. The conflict had its roots in ethnic, cultural, and political differences between the Poles and the Ukrainian populations living in the region. My grandfather was involved in the conflict, and a major part of the struggle that he described was about coming to the aid of the defenders of Lviv or Lemberg. Around the, that time, the Ministry of Defense called up officers with a legal education to apply for service in the Judicial Corps. My grandfather joined. If he was not on an investigating tour in the field, he sat during trials as an assistant judge on serious cases or else he was defending or prosecuting, depending on the order from the Chief Justice. The last war that my grandfather discusses in his book is the Polish-Bolshevik War from February 1919 to October of 1920. The Polish forces initially made some headway, but then the Soviet operation pushed the force, Polish forces back westward. My grandfather, Wrote here. The Ukrainians were repelled from Polish, Poland's borders, yet the Bolsheviks and their westward drive wish us to share the joys of the Soviet system. The Polish psychological makeup is different, and even simple folk crave statehood. We have been deprived of it for far too long forsake it for the price of doctrinaire programs and become a gray non-entity. Now, as for centuries, we play the role of a bulwark for Europe. It was bad news from the front as they uh, approached uh, Warsaw and my grandfather volunteered for the front and was involved in the training of uh, uh, machine gunners, and in mid-August 1920, the tide turned again as the Polish forces achieved an unexpected and decisive victory at the Battle of Warsaw, which is known as the Miracle on the Vistula. Chapter 49 is the shortest chapter in the book, and it represents the, the moment when there was a sudden realization that all the fighting had finally come to an end. It was the morning of October 10th. I was still asleep when Gradowski rushed in, panting like a bombshell. Peace signed with the Bolsheviks, he shouted at the top of his lungs, and one cannot tell whether he is laughing or crying. What about the Lithuanians? A truce. I shut my eyes, thinking, peace, peace. The war is over. There will be no battles, operations, orders, marches. No artillery will thunder, no wounds, no misery, lice or disease, and we shall sleep. Gadalski, who told you that? The whole division is talking about it. It was reported during the night. It means we survived the war and shall go home. We greet each other with the word peace. That evening, a banquet is given in our mess. For the first time since the 28th of July, 1914, I fall asleep like a newborn man. Only inside me, something seems to unbuckle and unwind. Neither joy nor relief, something I would call a befuddled stupefaction. So peace was signed with the Bolsheviks at the Treaty of Riga in March of 1921. And that was the end of that war. My grandfather, after his hung up his his uh, military uniform and went into private practice as a lawyer. So what I've just presented 
There's an outline of Stanislav Kapchak's memoirs, Dying Echoes, with some excerpts from the story. The book is detailed and vivid with descriptions of persons, places, and events that make the reader feel that they are there and witness the described scenes. The book also describes the political situation and the thinking of Polish officers throughout the period. The book reveals the burning desire and yearning of Poles for an independent and free country of their own. There was an evolution in the thinking and an increasing desire to take matters into their own hands. After 125 years of not existing on the map of Europe, in 1918, the Polish state was reborn. Yet, in the midst of its birth and amid all the chaos, it immediately had military confrontations with neighbors and faced a near catastrophic war with the Bolsheviks, which they not only won, but effectively saved their Western neighbors from an unwanted visit by the Red Army. To use Churchill's phrase, there were many finest hours in Poland's history. And this was certainly one of them. In 2018, while many countries marked the end of World War I, Poland marked the 100th anniversary of the rebirth of the country, which was an occasion for joy and celebration. Similarly, this year in 2020, Poland marked the 100th anniversary of the miracle on the Vistula. It is my hope that this English translation of my grandfather's book will be of use to future generations who are interested in those times and reading the memoirs of someone who was there. So this is the book, it's Dying Echoes, available on Amazon. Thank you for your attention and interest.